Hello and welcome to the Sundays of Our Time. I'm your host, Jim Germain, and today we're going to be taking a break from the ordinary. See, last week we talked about the 30th Sunday in Ordinary Time, and next week we'll be talking about the 32nd Sunday. So you might think that this week we'll talk about the 31st Sunday. Unfortunately, if that's your theory, then you're wrong. Your theory is bad and you should feel bad. Yes, you are entirely mistaken because, in fact, we're skipping the 31st Sunday. It just doesn't happen this year. Mostly just to mess with you OCD people. We're going to be talking about the Solemnity of All Saints. And since we're taking a break from the ordinary, I thought we'd mix things up with a little bit of background. What is the Solemnity of All Saints? Where does it come from? What does it mean? Well, first, we need to talk about saints. Many people think of saints, they think of St. Francis, St. Dominic, St. George. But really, a saint is anybody in heaven. In fact, St. Paul uses the word saint to refer to anyone who's baptized. But we can understand that as we are all saints on the way, but we are not saints in totality, like a child who still needs to grow up. The saints have achieved adulthood, spiritually speaking. A saint is anybody in heaven. So your grandma, if she's in heaven, is a saint. She may never be canonized, may never be officially recognized. She may never receive the title of saint. In fact, she probably won't, but she's a saint nonetheless. Saint John Paul II was a saint even before he was canonized. It's simply a recognition of his sainthood, not the cause of it. So we can recognize these two categories of saints, those who are saints by way of title, canonized saints, and those who are saints simply by virtue of being in heaven. And the solemnity of all saints, we can see this in either way, right? You can either celebrate the solemnity of all saints as a reference to all saints, a celebration for everybody in heaven. That is a completely legitimate use of it. And if you read the readings, there are parts that reflect that interpretation. At the same time, that's not how it was established. The solemnity of all saints was established to recognize those saints who are unknown. Right? There are many people who died a martyr's death, who lived extraordinary lives, who through their intercession have wrought miracles, and they would totally qualify for canonization if we just knew who they were. But we don't. So we can't really give them their own individual solemnities, their own individual feast days, so we give them this day, November 2nd, November 1st, as the Solemnity of All Saints. And as we read the readings, this is the primary focus, these unknown saints, these unknown martyrs. And as long as we're talking about the feast day, let's go on a bit of a tangent. So November 2nd is going to be the Solemnity of All Souls. But we're not going to be celebrating those souls in hell, of course, so not really all souls. And we're not going to be celebrating my soul and your soul because we're still alive. So the Solemnity of All Souls is similar in that it has this dual focus. On the one hand, it's not the souls in heaven, not the souls in hell, so who's left? You've got purgatory, it's one option. No, limbo is not the other option, stop it. And right. the souls in purgatory, a day to fast and pray for their sake, they would arrive swiftly into heaven. On the other hand, you have those souls who we don't know where they are. In fact, apart from the 30,000 or so canonized saints, we don't know where any of the other 6 billion dead people went to. They're all unknowns. The solemnity of all souls is a day for them to pray and fast that they did make it to heaven, or at least that they are now in purgatory. 
and if they're in purgatory, that their purgation would be swift. So that's your background. Without further ado, let's get to the readings. Our first reading this week comes from Revelations chapter 7. I like Revelations. Revelations is a fun book. You know, it drives Protestants crazy because they can't understand it. The only way you can understand Revelation is one, church history, and to understand church history is to cease to be Protestant, and two, to understand the Mass. So if you don't go to Mass, if you don't see it every week, you're not going to get it. Revelation is a heavenly liturgy. It's a celestial Mass, and it's awesome. I love Revelations, and you should too. Anyway... Revelations, chapter 7, verses 2 through 4 and 9 through 14. I, John, saw another angel come up from the east, holding the seal of the living God. He cried out in a loud voice to the four angels, who were given power to damage the land and the sea. Do not damage the land or the sea or the trees until we put the seal on the forehead of the servants of God. This is kind of a fun verse. There's records that the early Christians would sign themselves with a sign of the cross. Right? But they didn't do it like we did, starting at the forehead, going down to the navel, and then the shoulders. Theirs was just a writing the cross on their forehead with their thumb. Kind of the way that the priest does on Ash Wednesday, when he marks you with the sign of the cross with the ashes. So that was the earliest form of the sign of the cross, and then later on it got evolved into the one we do for the readings, when we do the sign of the cross on our foreheads, on our hearts, and on our lips. And then eventually, someday, the one that we do more regularly came about, but that's the newest version. I heard the number of those who had been marked with the seal, 144,000 marked from every tribe of the children of Israel. This does not mean that only 144,000 people are going to heaven, right? as some people think. No, this number signifies the totality of Israel, right? There's 12 tribes. It's actually 13, but we won't get into that right now. There's 12 tribes listed here. They skipped Dan. Taking 12 squared is a totality. And then increasing by a factor of 1,000, multiplying by 1,000 signifies uh, that same principle. It's like totality of the totality of Israel. Uh, Verses 5 through 8 come next, and that's just saying 12,000 from this tribe, 12,000 from that tribe, 12,000 from another tribe. After this, I had a vision of a great multitude, which no one could count, from every nation, race, people, and tongue. They stood before the throne and before the Lamb, wearing white robes and holding palm branches in their hands. They cried out in a loud voice, Salvation comes from our God, who is seated on the throne and from the Lamb. Again, the 144,000 is not everyone in heaven. Proof, a great multitude, who is different, also in heaven. Hmm, weird. All the angels stood around the throne. And around the elders and the four living creatures, the four living creatures are traditionally seen to represent the Gospels. Uh, They prostrate themselves before the throne, worshiping God and exclaiming, Amen, blessing and glory, wisdom and thanksgiving, honor, power, might be to our God forever and ever. Amen. Uh, This little prayer here is often thought to be an early Christian prayer, something that was said during those early Christian masses. Then one of the elders spoke up and said to me, Who are these wearing white robes, and where did they come from? I said to him, My Lord, you are the one who knows. He said to me, These are the ones who have survived the time of great distress. They have washed their robes and made them white in the blood of the Lamb. When I uh, did this as a Bible study yesterday, 
two days ago, Monday, whenever that was, uh, the question came up, why does the angel ask him who are these wearing white robes when the angel is the one who knows? Well, it's an easy question. Thank you for easy questions. I like easy questions. It's a teaching technique, right? Right, I do the same thing. I did it in this very podcast. I started by saying, what is a saint? Well, I'm not asking because I don't know. I want to get you thinking about it. The idea is that I don't want to just give you the answers. I want a participation. I want you contemplating these things so that when I give you the answer, you get more of the, oh, moment. And not so much of the, uh-huh, okay, can you stop talking now? I'm tired. Right. So that's that. Now, a little bit more on these readings. We did Revelation chapter 7, starting in verse 2. But we skip verse 1. Verse 1 discusses four angels standing at each of the four corners of the earth. Now, if Revelation is depicting the entirety of heaven as a temple, and earth has four corners with four angels, then we can put those pieces together with previous clues from Exodus and the description of the tabernacle there, that earth is being seen as an altar upon which the martyrs are sacrificed. Right? That was chapter 6, the martyrs being sacrificed and crying out, Lord, how long will you allow this to continue? They also were wearing white robes, and the implication seems to be that that's who this is still. They, those were martyrs. These are also martyrs, which is interesting with the line, these are the ones who have survived the time of great distress, right? They're martyrs, and yet they're said to have survived. That's kind of weird, huh? Well, no, they didn't survive physically. They survived spiritually. They didn't cave. They didn't turn away. They didn't deny Christ. They said, I'm Christian. I will hold to the faith. And they died for it. And in giving their life, they saved it. This indication, washing their robes, making them white, um, that seems to be an allusion to the priestly ordination of the Jews. Right? When the robes of the priests would be splattered with blood to cleanse them. So the illusion here is that they are being ordained to a heavenly priesthood. And indeed, later on, it refers to them ministering before the Lamb for all time. Also of note, kind of fun, is in 7.16, it says that they shall hunger and thirst no more. It's a fun little line. Hunger and thirst for righteousness no more. That we'll get back to that later. It'll be important. Psalms. Our psalm is chapter 24. Lord, this is the people that longs to see your face. I think this is a major point. I love the psalms. Between the psalms and the Alleluia verse, you're going to find the major point of the readings. Lord, this is the people that longs to see your face. The Lord's are the earth and its fullness, the world and those who dwell in it. For he founded it upon the seas and established it upon the rivers, right? He made it. He created it. It's his. Lord, this is the people that longs to see your face. Who can ascend the mountain of the Lord, or who may stand in his holy place? This is an allusion to many different mountains, actually. The image of the mountain of the Lord is a typological theme. It's something that comes up over and over again. Uh, Genesis, the Garden of Eden, was said to be at the top of a mountain, uh, topped with the trees 
of knowledge of good and evil and the tree of life. Right? The garden was God's first holy place. Moses ascends to a mountaintop to receive the Ten Commandments. The temple is built on the highest peak of the hill of Jerusalem, on. At the very top is the temple and at the holy place. One whose hands are sinless, whose heart is clean. Heart is clean, that's going to come up later. Who desires not what is vain. Lord, this is the people that longs to see your face. He shall receive a blessing from the Lord, a reward for God his Savior. Such is the race that seeks him, that seeks the face of the God of Jacob. Lord, this is the people that longs to see your face. Second reading, first letter of John. Beloved, see what love the Father has bestowed on us. And that's an illusion of baptism, right? Bestowed on us in baptism. That we may be called the children of God. Yet so we are. The reason the world does not know us is that it did not know him. I had a nun come in here the other day who speaking on how sad she gets when churches spend $300,000 on their entryways. It's just like, I always think back to how one of the disciples, when a woman came and put expensive perfumes on Jesus' head, and he goes, huh, that perfume could have been sold for lots of money. You know, he wasn't exactly the best of disciples. You know, Judas was his name, I think. Yeah, he did stuff that we aren't too happy with him about. The reason the world doesn't know us is that it did not know him. The world looks at our grand churches and says, Huh, these Christians, they claim to be so holy. Why don't they spend that money on the poor? The truth is that anybody can give money to feed the poor. I just gave a dollar at Taco Bell to feed the poor. Only the church can save souls, can baptize, can confirm can distribute communion. There is no housing too grand for Christ and his church. And when we build these expensive churches, we're not just throwing money away for the sake of grandizing ourselves. This is the house of God. It proclaims his truth, his goodness, his beauty. We should never be ashamed to spend money on God. Beloved, we are God's children now. What we shall be has not yet been revealed, right? Right now we're God's children. But that's not going to continue forever. We will always be God's children in that sense that I am still my parents' child, even though I'm 28. But like all children, we have to grow up. Someday, we're going to grow up. That's what the saints in heaven have already accomplished. We do know that when it is revealed, we shall be like him. For we shall see him as he is. Right? We shall see him face to face because we are the people that longs to see his face. We shall be like him. Like a child, when he's young, he desires to be like his father. But he can't be like his father. He doesn't know mechanics. He doesn't know how to play football. He can barely hold a football. He's short and weak. And he wants to be tall and strong like daddy. We are the children of God. And we shall be like him. For we shall see him as he is. Everyone who has this hope based on him makes himself pure as he is pure. You notice that purity showed up. The end of the revelations, they washed their robes and made them pure. 
In the response to the psalm, the second verse, heart is clean or pure, right? Alleluia comes from Matthew. Alleluia, alleluia. Come to me, all you who labor and are burdened, and I will give you rest, says the Lord. Alleluia, alleluia. Um, we'll come back to this. The Gospel, Matthew 5. When Jesus saw the crowds, he went up the mountain. Who can ascend the mountain? Jesus can. After he had sat down, his disciples came to him. It's interesting, they apparently also came up the mountain. Others didn't specify this, just that they came to him, because they desired to see his face. He began to teach them, saying, Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are they who mourn, for they will be comforted. Blessed are the meek, for they will inherit the land. Blessed are they who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they will be satisfied. Blessed are the merciful, for they will be shown mercy. Blessed are the clean of heart, for they will see God. Blessed are the peacemakers, for they will be called children of God. Blessed are they who are persecuted for the sake of righteousness, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are you when they insult you and persecute you and utter every kind of evil against you falsely because of me. Rejoice and be glad, for your reward will be great in heaven. This is the start of the Sermon on the Mount. It's the same sermon that in Luke is given on the plains. One theory is that this is kind of Jesus' staple sermon. Yet he would travel around and deliver this from town to town to town. The disciples probably heard it a lot. And Matthew's probably kind of recounting the first time he gives it, when just his disciples come to him and he says this. And then Luke's giving a later account when he's giving it to the whole of the assembly, everyone who's following him. And what this is, is almost a new legal code, a new law that his followers are going to follow. He even says as much, that he has not come to abolish the old law, as I want us to be confused, he's come to fulfill it. The old law says that you shouldn't kill. The new law says you shouldn't hate. The old law says you shouldn't commit adultery. The new law says don't even look on a woman lustfully. The old law said you should donate 10% to God. The new law says give everything. Come to me, all you who labor and are burdened, and I will give you rest, says the Lord. The law of Christ is in effect, more harsh, it's stricter than the old law of Moses, but it's not more burdensome. Whereas Moses added burdens, Christ takes up our burdens upon himself. It's hard because we don't want to give them up. We see the world and the pleasure of the world as benefits, luxuries, things to be enjoyed. But Christ shows us the truth, that they're hindrances that keep us from the fullness of our true purpose in God. They're things that keep us from God, from Him, from fulfilling the reason we're here. And so when we give up those things for God, that's not a burden. That's freedom. That's what Christ offers. He takes what we think and He turns it on its head. Blessed are the poor in spirit. Right? The idea here is those who have lost their status. They're not trusting in themselves anymore because they have no more of themselves to trust in. They've lost everything. So they have to trust in God. Blessed are those who trust in God, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven, who recognize that everything they have comes from God. Blessed are they who mourn. 
What are they mourning for? They're in mourning for their sins, for the sins of the whole world. When you love someone, you don't want to hurt them. When you love somebody, you want for their good, to bring them joy and happiness. And when we sin, we hurt God. That's sad. And we should mourn for our sins. Blessed are the meek, the gentle, those who trust in God, those who evangelize without proselytizing, yeah, those who proclaim the truth in love and not in harshness. Blessed are they who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they will be satisfied, right? That's a reference that comes up again in the Revelations, as we discussed earlier. Blessed are the merciful, for they will be shown mercy. And so you got those first four, poor in spirit, mourn, meek, hunger and thirst, the almost bad things, right? That Christ says, no, these are good things. And, and they start with the kingdom of God. Then we have four more. Merciful will be shown mercy. The clean of heart will see God. Peacemakers shall be called children of God. These are better, right? Merciful, clean of heart, peacemakers, we can see those are good. And then suddenly we get switched back. Blessed are they who are persecuted for the sake of righteousness. Like, well, Jesus, that seems to be bad again. You messed up your pattern. No. Jesus showing is that being persecuted for the sake of righteousness, that's the greatest thing. That's how we give the greatest honor to God, how we most fully participate with God. Truly, that's what Jesus did on the cross. He was persecuted for the sake of righteousness. And through his persecution, we were made righteous. And through that persecution, he opened to us the kingdom of heaven. Backtracking a bit for tangent time, uh, peacemakers, those not people who stop wars, per se, that's a good thing too, but their idea here is more evangelists, people who make peace with God, who help you to make peace with God. Blessed are the clean in heart has been a recurring theme throughout these readings. Purity. This whole reading set is about the unknown martyrs, those who were persecuted for the sake of righteousness and now possess the kingdom of God. Now let's just talk about the saints for a bit and do our moral lesson of the day. There are two major lessons I think we can take from these readings in regard to our relation with the saints. The first is that the saints are examples of the Beatitudes, right? They lived it. We can look to them and their lives and say, oh, that's how you do it. That's how you be Catholic. They're the Catholic extremists that we're striving to model. At the same time, they've received the reward. They've gotten what we want. There is no maybe in the Beatitudes. It's not, may the poor in spirit be blessed with the kingdom of God. No, theirs is the kingdom of God. Not, may those who mourn be comforted. No, those who mourn shall be comforted. They who are persecuted for the sake of righteousness, theirs is, right now is, the kingdom of heaven. The saints serve for us both as models of how to live our lives, but also as proof, positive, that the promises will be fulfilled because they have it. We can look to them. We can hear their words, see the miracles that are wrought by their intercession, and know that yes, heaven is real. Yes, it's been promised. And yes, 
it will be received. Well, brothers and sisters, I want to thank you for joining me this day. I hope you have a blessed solemnity of all saints. And I hope to see you again next week on the Sundays of our time. Once again, I'm Jim Germain. Thank you. God bless.